thousand planes Played my songs for total strangers But they already knew my name There's no sense in counting The times I woke up
Welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was 170 split and going home from the the story so far retrospective. That's because I've got Leo Lyons here today from 170 split but famously the bassist and founder member of 10 years after so of course we'll be covering 170 split as well as many of his highlights with 10 years after. So let's hear my chat with Leo. Thank you so much for doing this. That's okay. One of the things I I wanted to cover is the new retrospective or compilation of the 170 split. Did it feel like a good time to collect some of the highlights from your group? Uh, Yeah, I think it's I think it's a good album to check out. I mean, it's so difficult. Usually a compilation is a best of and this isn't really a best of because it's so bloody difficult to decide what to leave out, you know. But um, we signed over our recording so far to um, Repertoire and they wanted something to to introduce the band because... uh, So another thing I want to talk about is the actual name of the band, 170 Split. What we found was that we've got a big fan base 
in the places that we play and in the places we don't play, nobody knows who the hell 170 split is. So we decided um, at the end of the year, with the encouragement of our bandmates, to rename it Leo Lyons, found a member of 10 years after, to try and get through to more people. You would think that uh, people would know, but they don't. You know, people write to me on my Facebook sites, for example, saying, hey, Leo, are you still doing gigs? And there's videos of gigs and everything. So P.T. Barnum said, you can't overestimate. (laughs) Nobody stays glued to Facebook and punches in your name on Google to know what you're doing. So it it was all about that and putting out that new record. And and we're we're recording, we're finishing off a new record at the moment. So that should be out later this year. 170 split. It's almost a continuation or an evolution from 10 years after anyway, given that uh, Joe was also in the lineup when you were in the group. Yeah, it's a continuation, certainly a continuation of 10 years after. I've worked with Joe now for, what, 15 years? Known him for maybe 35 years. <laughs> Knew him as a child. So uh, we're, we're pretty close. And with Damon Sawyer, who's been with us for 11 years, drummer Damon Sawyer, you know, we're a pretty tight-knit band. Everyone does different things, but um, we all come together and do that. And, yes, it is a continuation. It's certainly a continuation of my career. I mean, the reason I quit doing the, the other 10 years after personal reasons, and also I felt I wanted to have a, I didn't want to become a covers band or a tribute band, you know, and, and there were there was some, I don't mind playing 10 years after songs. In fact, I enjoyed playing some of them, but I wanted to feel like we were moving forward as well, doing new stuff. So many bands now just stop, stop recording and just go out and, and maybe it's only the the drummer's roadie. Maybe there's no, no, no original member in the band. But uh, such are the times. It's They're difficult times for musicians that want to do something new and different. So with 170 Split, mm-hmm. you've got such a, a key role in terms of the production, the writing of the material, so it is mm-hmm. really representative of you as you of, as an artist. Yes, I think it is. It's it's a continuation of my career, and it's all the influences that I've had, you know, from... I started working with Alvin when I was 16, when he was 15. So we've there's all those influences, all those early rock and roll influences, and, uh, you know, that kind of thing, the, the swing, the jazzy kind of stuff. And Joe brings some of his prog type of stuff to, to the mix. Damon's kind of into jazz, among other things, so... That's how it is. But I guess if you took the bass out and my contribution towards the band, it would, would be quite a lot different. So I suppose it's a continuation of my my musical journey. When I heard songs like Going Home, there seems to be a bit more of a biographical or personal element to that. So were they lyrics that you had a hand in? or? Oh, yeah, I co-wrote it. I, I've written a lot of songs. I was a staff songwriter in Nashville, writing country music in actual fact for Golly, 16 years I lived there. And one of one of my co-writers and, and good friend is a guy called Fred Cole. And Fred and I have written hundreds of songs together. And that happened to be one of the songs that uh, he and I wrote. And a lot of the 170 split songs are co-written, mostly with, with Fred and Joe and I. One or two that I, I've not written with them, but mostly have. And yes, it's biographical. The sound is quite varied, but does have a unity threaded through that. So... Another song from the story so far, The Devil to Pay. There's a blues element, but there's a bit of sort of old 30s, 40s swing. Yes, that's right. That, you know, that's the um, 
the Alvin and I, where we were into Duke Ellington and that kind of thing. And you can look look back at the early 10 years after records, like I May Be Wrong or Woodchopper's Bull and, and those things. That's that's what we do. And not a lot of people do that now. So uh, I enjoy that. I enjoy a good sw- swing, 12 bar.
clearly, as you were saying before, very difficult to have a best of when there's, there's so much great stuff to choose. How did you whittle those songs down or did you let the label take the lead or...? No, the, the label were very kind kind to me. Thomas Rhett said, pick some songs. Have you got two extra songs? So what I did was I took the took the records and tried to pick one or two from each of the of the albums we'd recorded. And then then we added two songs that we'd done in lockdown where we were stuck and um, we added a sort of a broke broke down version of those as extras and and that's that's how it works so um it was disappointing to see. we could have done a 5 cd box set and then everything that i would like to say would have been on it but uh, it's just a sampler just a taster for people you've got a little 10 years after material that you've done live on on the album is this good morning little schoolgirl just going to that song in particular, back from the, the 10 years after days, was that a song that you heard in the early 60s or late 50s from the Sonny Boy Williamson original? Or was that a song that other bands were playing and then... Uh, not that I know at the time. I think Larry Williams did a recording, a pop recording of it. But it's the Sonny Boy Williamson and um, the Larry Williams thing. And then I, I came up with a sort of a, a version of the riff which is an important part of the song, and then we jammed off on the riff. It may not be politically correct now, but um, it is an old blues song. <laughs> Obviously, uh, you're a renowned bassist. In 170 Split, are you solely focused on the bass, or do you just play the guitar as well? Or No, I, d- I don't play the guitar. I play the guitar at home a, a little bit, and I, I sometimes use a guitar for writing. But uh, no, I play the bass, and I play the upright bass as well. Where possible, if we're not flying in and we can drive in, I'll take an upright. And the devil to pay, for instance, you just talked about. I I, I use an upright base. Hello, welcome back.
Dankeschön, Mr. Neil Lyons on the bass. Thank you very much. Thank you. You mentioned about some of those new tracks that are on on that compilation that mm -hmm. were recorded in in lockdown. One of those is um, "I Grew Up on Muddy Waters," and yeah. Muddy Waters, an artist that you heard, yeah, Muddy back Waters. In the day. Yeah, I think I've got first turned on to Muddy Waters with the Muddy Muddy Waters at Newport, the Newport Jazz Festival, the live recording. That's what blew me away with all those players. And um, we subsequently, we ended up 10 years after, I think on a second tour of America, we ended up doing four days in a club in San Diego with Muddy Waters as our support band, which embarrassed me tremendously. And I was so embarrassed, I didn't even get to talk to him, but... Uh, Yes, a big influence, Muddy Waters, all those blues guys, the blues, the rock and the, and the jazz, the, you know, Duke Ellington and people like that who were influential, all those rock and, old rock and roll and country music. I love country music too. Kind of missed out on the punk thing. I can appreciate some of it now. A lot of the folk, American folk stuff I liked, some of the new stuff I like, but uh, I still go back to my blues and blues roots. And so in, in the late 50s, were, were you in a, a skiffle group or did you bypass yeah. that? No, no. We, I started in a sort of a skiffle group. I think it was called the Cubs, the Lion Cubs. <laughs> but we didn't play anywhere. You know, it was just, uh, I was playing guitar then. And then uh, I joined what, what would be now called a garage band. I had guitar lessons and um, my guitar teacher introduced me to some other young guys. Actually, they're slightly older, but... Um, and they had a band. They had about four guitar players in it, and they needed someone to play the bass line. So I played the bass line on my guitar, the six-string guitar. And um, from there, I, I saved up and bought a bass guitar, and I played the bass guitar with this band. And um, we did a talent contest, and I was spotted on the talent contest and offered a job with a local band and that was going to turn professional. So in 1960, I turned professional as a bass player. Was that when you around the time you met Alvin Lee then? Yeah, I joined the band. I'd been with them a week and the guitar player left because his father said he couldn't turn professional. And 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 I think I'd done maybe I was enjoying it. I maybe I'd done two weeks with the band. And then one day the ma manager turned up and said, Oh, the guitar player's left. Here's an amp, here's a guitar, you're playing guitar tonight. So I did actually play lead guitar one in one occasion in my life. So we put an advertisement in, in a local newspaper and Alvin joined. So he, two or three weeks into that band, Alvin was joined. He was 15. And we worked together throughout the most of our career, yeah. I've read that you um, played the Star Club in, in Hamburg just after the Beatles had been. Yes, um, 1962, yeah. How did that happen? Um, we, we were called the Jaybirds. We were touring England as a three-piece and on one of those gigs, a piano player that called Roy Young that used to, you know, the Jerry Lee Lewis on Oh Boy. Roy was over. He was he was the resident pianist in in the band at the Star Club, and he'd come over to look for bands to play there. Roy saw us and offered us a gig, and over we went. The stories of the Beatles is playing like really long sets, and and yes. that helped to hone their chops as a group. Is yes. was that your experience as well? Yes, it did. Without those long hours, and it was like an hour on an hour off from, I think in the afternoon, I think we started at about four at weekends and six in the evening, six in the week, and till late in the, very late in the morning, sometimes four or five, six o'clock in the morning, we'd carry on an hour on an hour off. That really does make you, it makes you extend your set. That's how we started jamming the long, extending the songs and the long solos. Without that, 
we wouldn't have been playing the music that we're playing. And uh, it was only Alvin and I, of course, that were there. It wasn't the other two guys. They came along much later. But that had sort of set in concrete what we were doing, really, as it did for a lot of bands. And you must have been quite young. I was 18, I think. Yeah. Alvin was 17. I was 18. Yeah. Ah, first time. I, I went abroad with the school, but uh, I, that's the first time I've lived in the red light district over a ladies' mud wrestling bar. <laughs> you know, it, I think George Harrison said, said, I went there as a boy and came back a man, and it, it, that, that about sums it up. There were strange times. I think around this period, or certainly in the, the following years, you started to back other artists and, and playing live in, in the UK and, and sessions. So yeah, yes, what are your right. memories of that? And who were you working with? Um, well, all those Larry Parnes acts of the day, um, Johnny Gentle, Vince Eager, um, oh golly, did so many now. We Willie Harris, um, The Vernon's Girls, Ian Kane. I can't think of oh, the um, the Ivy League, the Flowerpot Men, yeah. and lots more. I can't w- without kind of going back in my diary. I can't remember. And then I played on a lot of records that I don't know what they were because in those days uh, when you were doing a session, unlike now, they give you a piece of music, you go in and you play, it, and then they pay you and you go. And, and often I don't didn't hear the top line or even see the artist. So. It was it was quite a it was quite interesting. We we did quite a quite a lot of touring with the Ivy League. Um, at, at, towards the end of um, what was it called it vaudeville, you know, where yeah. where you'd have uh, a juggler, a comedian, and a pop star on the same bill. So I think with the the Ivy League back in the I, Ivy League, but you were on the same bill as was it the Walker Brothers and yeah, the Walker Brothers, Dave D and Tom Jones, yeah, people like that, yeah. Yes, indeed. And Matt, Matt Monroe. Oh. And <laughs> lots of very strange, uh, strange people. But it was good. We'd worked in, we also, we worked in the theatre. We were in a West End play called uh, Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, the Alan Silto play, which is based in Nottingham. We played the part of a band and we did bit parts as walk-on actors. And uh, we did that. That was the third time we went to London. The first couple of times we went, we we failed miserably. This was just Alvin and I. Third time we went down, I managed, I was managing the band. I I was able to get this gig in the theatre. And I thought that would would keep us in London and maybe some agents would see us. Well, the agents didn't really see us. They saw us as a backing band. And so that's how we started really intensely doing backing. We'd been doing it before we moved to London. And, and from what I've read of the Beatles, they were doing the same thing. Yeah. Oh, you guys are really good, but uh, would you back my artist? You know, and that's that's how we sustain. Always trying to get our own thing across. It's written that you were uh, you played on Willow Tree by the Ivy League. Probably yes. Mind. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I can't remember which ones I played on, um, but yeah, quite a few, quite a few of those, and um, also the Flowerpot Men. You know, the follow-on. Let's go to San Francisco, you know, and all those things, yeah.
Still the J J men at this. We were the J birds, yes. J birds, right. Yeah. But we were always trying to get our own thing going, and we were really playing. We were cross between old rock and roll and blues, and blues was becoming popular. So we kind of lent a little more towards the blues thing, trying to get get the blues thing going, but still doing these backing shows. And, and in actual fact, I, I was managing the band, and I was I was doing sessions. For I, I, lots of different people, and also working in a, a nightclub, a restaurant, a liaison place, business known take the secretaries, I guess, late at night in, in in Chelsea with a jazz guitar player called Danny Danny Wright, who played with Lonnie Donegan. The jazz thing was Danny's thing, and then when Lonnie played, he went out and played with Lonnie, and he and I played very quiet jazz in this restaurant. So in between sessions and playing jazz, I was doing quite well financially and uh, still trying to get the band going. And, and actually, once we started getting gigs with the band, I started to lose. I lost my session gigs and I lost my jazz gigs and I lost my income as well, really, um, because you'd go up to play Colwyn Bay Pier for a few quid. And by the time you paid your petrol, you, there was nothing left, whereas I could have done two sessions that day and the jazz gig in the evening. So. I was committed to make it happen. So when and did Decca? Probably 1967. We, we'd already failed an audition with Decca. Right. But then I think we'd, we'd started to build up a little following in the blues clubs in the UK, and, and we managed to get ourselves a, a residency at the Marquee. And Mike Vernon, who was, a, who was a staff producer for Decca at the time, he'd been um, given the chance to start the DRAM label to work on the DRAM label, and, and Mike saw us and, and signed us to the DRAM label, and it was actually the first time that uh, 
as far as I know, that, that an album deal had been given to a band. Usually you do two or three singles and they put those on an album if they're successful. And if they don't, aren't successful, there's no album. But uh, and that's that's how we got signed to Decca. So, and it was within a matter of months of being turned down. We, we recorded the first album in the same studio that we'd auditioned in. And the engineer was the same engineer, mm. Gus Dudgeon, who produced ah. lots and lots of people, including Elton John. And it was your idea to change the the name of the band. I, I guess it thing the name seemed a bit sort of passe by then. Absolutely. Um, by this time, I'd persuade someone to manage us because I, I, I'm managing my own band now, and I hate it. But uh, you know, sometimes you have to wait till the right person comes along. We found that, the, that what we thought was the right person in Chris Wright, and Chris said, "Well, we decided to call ourselves the Blue Shard." But Chris said to me, "I think that's that's going to tie you down to to, to one type of music." go away, come back on Monday and give me a name. And I'd look through the Radio Times, which you'll know, and most yeah. people of our age will remember. Yeah. And there was an advertisement for a book about the Suez Canal invasion in 1956 called Suez 10 Years After. And, and I thought 10 years after that would be a really good name. There was another one called Life Without Mother, which was about the end of national service. But I had the, those two in mind. And I put it to the, the other guys in the band and everyone said, yeah, 10 years after we like that, we'll go with it. And uh, I thought it was good in a way because it was the psychedelic kind of period. Yeah. And um, it was an interesting name because people would always ask what it was about. And over the years, we've said all sorts of things, but that's where I got it from. It means, you know, 10 and 1, to number 10 or the number 1 or 0 in the tarot. And oh, it's it's an important number, you know, in genealogy and numerology and all sorts of things. So. And the material for that album, there's quite a range of tracks on there, including, I think it's a Paul Jones uh, yes. song, I, I Want to Know. I heard it on a compilation record. I didn't know it was Paul Jones at the time because Paul had written it under a pseudonym, but uh, yeah. Was the first album representative of your live set then? Yes, exactly. Exactly. We leaned more towards the blues and eased off on the rock and roll. A lot of that material was influenced by a, a blues compendium album that I had and we rehearsed that in in the basement of the Madison Hotel which is a rock and roll hotel it used to be in Lancaster Gate and we got all that material together and started playing it on stage and start cut out all the, all the other stuff we were doing bar a few rock and roll songs and uh, lean more towards the blues the blues credibility you know Chris Wright when he called me up he said I've you know, I've heard you. You know, you, you're doing really well. You, you're a good band. Someone's told me what sort of material you know, and I told him every blues song I could think of, because that's what. So we we increased our blues material and uh, decreased on the Chuck Berry, and uh, that was the first album that we started playing live. And we extended all those songs and changed them around a lot. Um, and I think Alvin wrote or co-wrote one or two of those songs. <laughs>
there's still some material around that period that was a bit less of the blues. Um, there was a single portable people that's got a bit more of a psychedelic side. Yeah, they still wanted a you know something a bit of a single. The interesting thing about ten years after, and you know, after having been in it for fifty years, I, I can look back at it. We never honed down the exact direction we were going in. You know, unlike some bands, ZZ Top. Boogie, Led Zeppelin, you know, that you could, they're definitive material, ACDC. Everybody has a definitive way they go, whereas ours was all over the place. It would be country, it would be acoustic, it would be rock and roll, it would be jazz, it would be blues, it would be country blues, heavy blues, all sorts. Never defined, never honed. So we just did that. And uh, to a certain extent, I guess that's in some ways what I, I still do. <laughs> You were also around that psychedelic scene. I think you even played Middle Earth and Oh yes, we did, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, all of those. And the um Roundhouse, all those places. It was yeah. mixed up then, particularly in America. I mean, you know, when you tour America, you'd have those um, oil slides and, and you'd be playing with gospel bands, jazz bands, blues bands, every every sort, particularly Bill Graham, he put in yeah. pretty eclectic mix, you know. One time we played with Miles Davis or the Staple Singers or, as I say, B.B. King or anyone, or Grateful Dead. Or... That eclectic sound really seemed to particularly come to the fore on Stonehenge. There's a real range of material there, but at the same time, when you focused on something that was more blues-related, like Hear Me Calling, things yeah. seemed to hit a groove then and it, it felt even more right for the group. I think you're right. I think the Stonehenge was the first time we... I mean, Mike was starting up his own label, uh, Blue Horizon, so he wasn't in the studio a lot for Stonehenge, and we were left to our own devices somewhat. And I think it's a bit of a self-indulgent record when you listen back to it. But, you know, the folly of youth, (laughs) it's there. And Hear Me Calling, yes. Um, Hear Me Calling could have been a single, of course, and it was, but not for 10 years after. Experimentation all all the time, that's, that's what we did. And, you know, when you're making records in those days, you weren't in there for months or even weeks, you know, it was a matter of days. It wasn't until, I think the most time, that, uh, 10 years after I've ever spent on a record has been 14 days, and that was towards the end of our, our career. Perhaps we should have spent more time, I don't know. Or maybe that's what 10 years after was about. But, uh, you know, when I, I produce a band now, I, I really have to work hard to get 40, I have to do a lot of pre-production to get something done in that length of time, particularly with a new band. Calling, hear me calling loud. 
When I hear some of that 10 years after material from the late 60s, like Stone Woman, mm-hmm. the band performance and what each band member brought to that material when you record it is so apparent. Although the, the songs are credited to Alvin, it, there must have been such a significant role that all the band members played in terms of really shaping those songs so they were they were ready to be recorded and released. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Alvin came with with the most of this. I say with 90, 95% of those songs were jammed out in the studio. Yeah. I mean, Alvin himself was credited, said somewhere, I, I was writing the lyrics on the, in the taxi on the way to the studio. So I, all the bass riffs were mine, of course, but a lot of the signature bass riffs, like In Love Like a Man or Hear Me Calling or Schoolgirl or I Can't Keep From Crying or Stoned Woman, which are, I guess are right up the forefront as a signature riff were mine, and we just jammed them out in the studio. That's what I was saying about the recording. Sometimes when I listen back now, I think should have had a channel there, or should have should have been a repeat chorus, or should have this, or the solo's too long, or that's that's a wrong note. But golly, you know, had the energy and the excitement. We went in, we did it, and we went out on the road, and we were doing three records a year and touring constantly. So, and even before Woodstock, you were playing some amazing festivals including the us like uh newport there was seattle and you were so even prior to woodstock you were building a following over the in the states as well oh yes yeah Um, i mean we were playing we were playing up to three thousand people a night before and i think we'd had a a, a couple of sort of a couple of our albums have been in the charts in in well all over but talking about the states so we were we were doing pretty well. It was just that when Woodstock happened and by accident when the film came out, that exposed our music to a worldwide thing. So we went from like three, sometimes 5,000 people to 50,000 people. And um, that's the story, you know. That's how it worked. It, it was luck. Nine years to get there, but lucky break. But it was a break too because Alvin didn't like it. He didn't like yeah. it. He found it too much. He wanted all the cake, but he didn't necessarily want to eat it.
Ten years after performance at Woodstock, typified by I'm Going Home, now ranks in one of the great iconic performances of, of the era. What are your sort of memories of the build-up to Woodstock? I've spoken to a few uh, people that featured at Woodstock, like Melanie, yeah. that was helicoptered in, and was it the same with you guys? Yes, it was. I mean, we didn't expect anything. It was just another gig. We, we'd done the Newport Jazz Festival, I think, on that particular tour, and we were doing a thing called Newport on the Road, where... Um, we were touring with some of the, the jazz. We, we were the gig the night before we played with Nina Simone in St. Louis, Missouri, to a 99% all black audience, which was quite scary because she did her song, I'm Black and I'm Proud, and then it was our turn to go on. But uh, that's another story. But we came straight from St. Louis, Missouri, and we flew into New York City. And that's when we heard that it was difficult to get to the gig and so on and so forth. So we. We drove up to um, Bethel, to the Holiday Inn in Bethel, and from there we got a helicopter to the gig. And by that time, it, it seemed to be pretty chaotic. Uh, they declared it a free festival. And from what I could see, there was, there was 
I, there was a dressing room. I never found it. <laughs> Pete Townsend came up to me and said, don't eat anything, Leo, because it's all spiked with acid. <laughs> and I hadn't eaten since the day before. Then the rain started, and I, I spent several hours in the back of a U-Haul truck waiting for the rain to stop, by which time, of course, it was a, a muddy mess. It was like Flanders without the shelling. And um, the stage was sliding down the hill, and there was fear of being electrocuted. <laughs> And all those things. I didn't see. I just I saw Joe Cocker play. I think that was about it. Or maybe Country Joe. Maybe saw Country Joe play too. And then the rain started. And uh, we waited. And by that time we got to go on stage, it was dark. And there were cables running across the stage and rain in between all the cables. And Owen said, well, we could be electrocuted. But if we are, then we'll sell a lot of records. And that was it. Um Incredible audience for the movie where there's all these bikers. Only it's like a whole load of people sitting around fires. It's a Mel Gibson film, but uh, and it was a little bit like that. You could see the steam rising off from the audience, and they were wonderful. And of course, because of the humidity, we had to stop the songs two or three times to tune up again. Then Alvin broke a string. So in that respect, I would say it was a tough gig to do, but the energy from the audience was brilliant. And fortunately, I'm going home as an encore anyway, but there were no strings broken. We were pretty much in tune, but uh, tough. And then we came to the end of the thing, and of course it was dark and the weather, the helicopters weren't running and had to find, we had to find our own way back to New York City. Maybe you, at the time, you realised that it was something special, but... I guess it's impossible to know the the cultural importance and impact that it would have on the group going forward. No, I, we we didn't think anything of it, to tell you the truth. And we just went off, went up, did a few more gigs, had a bit of time off. I, I went up into the mountains, in Sierra Nevada mountains with a mule and a horse and spent two weeks in the wilderness, came back, went back to the UK. And then on the next tour, people started asking us about Woodstock. You know, and all the newspapers and everything. I didn't, hadn't even thought about it. And then the movie came out, and that kind of made it even more of a talking point. And then um, that was it. You know, the epitaph on my gravestone will be Leo Lyons, the man who played Woodstock, or, or I could say the man who spent eight hours of a fifty-year career <laughs> there, which is about it. You know, but. Um, yeah, it was important, and, and we were lucky to have been there because it, it has sustained a career, you know, for those people that were there, I think. And a lot of young people now wish they'd have been there. And nothing like that will happen again because people try to make it happen, and, and it was spontaneous. And I think there was a, there's a whole thing that people genuinely, maybe naively, wanted to make the world a better place, wanted it to be peace, Everybody had this, the same sort of ideals about peace. And um, I, maybe at my age, I, I'm very sceptical now about these. You know, I think there's been some terrible documentaries, haven't they, about recent, yeah. later Woodstocks where it's just yeah. a cash thing and selling drugs and rape and yeah. all sorts of awful things. So I was lucky. I was lucky to have been there. But I was lucky to have been – I always say I feel like the Walter Mitty of rock and roll. I've <laughs> – I've been in in Hamburg and you know San Francisco and swinging sixties in London and and I've yeah. worked with most people that that have made a career out of music I, in a small way or in a big way I've I've met them so uh, I've been lucky yeah. I think I'm going home. Well, 
helicopter. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, 
baby Oh, baby, baby, baby Yeah, yeah When do that be my blood up one more time Yeah, let's go oh, oh. I'm going home I'm going home Oh, oh. I did my Babe, I'm coming to get you one more time.
after. Ten years after, it seems a bit strange that it didn't have many hits here in the UK, albeit the, one of those hits here in, in Britain was Love Like a Man. Mm-hmm. Was it that, certainly from British perspective or even American, you saw yourselves predominantly as an album-based group rather well, we than... Did. Yeah, we did, and Albion refused to do television. So when we, when we, I think I don't know where Love Like a Man got to in the UK charts, but Top of the Pops said, "Well, you got to come in and play." They were, what they were doing, they were dancing to it. Yeah, and Albion refused to do the television. And, and to be perfectly fair to him, I wasn't bothered about doing it either. I would probably have done it, but I wasn't that bothered. And they said, "Well, if you don't do it, we're going to stop playing it." So. There was that thing. It was, we don't want to be a pop band. We don't want to have hit singles. And it was the same with Love Like, with I'd Love to Change the World. I would refuse to play that live. Despite that, it was a hit, but uh, but not in the UK. It was in, in, in America. But uh, yeah, it was one of those, th- successophobia, I call it. I've worked with a lot of artists, produced them. I won't mention the names. And I've I've seen that in a lot of very talented people, that they're afraid of failing, so they make sure they don't succeed. The single of Like a Man was interesting because I think the B side was 33 and a third. So you've yeah. got the A side, obviously 45 RPM. Yeah. yeah. But the, the B side was actually a different speed. And I, I've read that certainly in relation to the first pressings of that, it, it didn't necessarily even say change the speed. No, it didn't. And they went and appeared on jukeboxes. It, it was uh, it was strange. I, I was making a record in France and I went out for a break and walked into a bar and they obviously recognised I think it was Rick Lee, the drummer, and I. They obviously recognised us. They put the record on, and it was 33 and a third, playing at 45, with everybody in in the bar applauding. <laughs> Very embarrassing. It's funny. Our, our tour manager at the time, a guy called Derek Sutton, an American, he went on to ma- manage Sticks, but he, he was our tour manager at the time, and he was the technical advisor on on the spinal tap movie and you know i think that's that was could be put down as a spinal tap moment along many others yeah we didn't think about it we thought oh 33 and a third there's a live version but it's too long to go on as 45 so let's put the live version on it on as the b-side and somehow we were indulged eddie kramer recorded that at um, the Fillmore east all right so that, that was a live recording it was live recording yeah it was under the stage I've had how he managed to get through the dust that was coming down over his head with a four-track recorder, but he did, and that came out as a live recording. Yeah, crazy. Maybe it's a collector's item now. I bet it is. Yeah. I don't have a copy, so...
you mentioned this song earlier, I'd Love to Change the World, which for me is possibly the, the greatest 10 years after. Wonderful song, an amazing group performance. There's a world weariness that comes out with with Alvin there. It was that something that was coming from the fact that you were you were playing arenas, massive in the States, but a bit difficult for Alvin? Well, yes. We, Alvin decided we were too big. And he'd said to our manager, we were too big de-escalators, which is a good thing to say to a manager when all of a sudden you... At that time, we were probably the biggest grossing touring band, in, in certainly in America, I don't know about the world. And we took a year out. And we all indulged ourselves in, the, in you know, the country houses and, and all that thing. And so Alvin had, was, had time to write for that Space in Time album. And that was one of the tracks that he wrote. Which I agree with. That, that was a, where it came from. I don't know because it's you know, yeah. I mean, some of the lyrics when you look at them now are a little bit weird, but the sentiment of it I think is is great idea. And recording it, just Alvin and I sat down after, at the end of a recording session and sat down and played it together, and then we dubbed in the drums and everything else afterwards. So it was just guitar and bass, and then then drums and keyboard were added. And um, yeah, it's it's probably one of the most aside from. Maybe I'm going home. Yeah. It's probably the, the you know one of the records that, that you hear on the radio, certainly in the states all the time, and in movies now, of course, in the Amsterdam movies. And that's why we did. That's why we added it to the Woodstock '69 right. HSS release. And I wish I think I've added it on the on the story so far as well, which is a live recording um, yeah. of 170 split playing it. Ironically, because Alvin would never play it live, so and I think I think that Joe Gooch and I probably could do a pretty, yeah. Um, so anyway, sympathetic, uh, sympathetic. I don't know. It's a good example, anyway. Good version of, of the song. Ten years after splitting up in the mid seventies, was that a, a divide in the group where the rest of you wanted to carry on and were happy with how things were going, but Alvin was just not comfortable continuing the way that you were. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think it was, I think you could say it was mainly Alvin, and, and you know, retrospectively, I don't blame him. I know people have to do what they want to do. It was pretty annoying at the time for me, I must admit, because I I enjoyed touring, I enjoyed playing, and um, but as Alvin said to me, he decided very early on that he wanted to have all the writing credit. So that means uh, for people that don't know that the writer makes probably four times as much money as the rest of the band so he, he didn't really need to be touring but it wasn't a financial thing we were all doing okay but he, he just didn't want to tour um i did i'd already started producing anyway and um, i'd i'd met my wife and uh, one thing and another so i wasn't too bothered i wasn't too bothered at the time i, I would like to have carried on but i wasn't too bothered of course we we were reformed periodically yeah right after that almost like um somebody's got let you out on a piece of string and then pulls you back in again which is not far from the truth so far as the management and record company goes say leo you've got to come back and do the 10 years after thing again it stopped quite a few careers you know midstream my producing career and all sorts of other things but um yeah then we'd go out for a while and then it, Alvin would feel this, make enough money and decide he didn't need to do it again and it would stop again. It would work for a time and then it wouldn't. It was pretty much, it was Alvin and my band, I guess, and the other guys 
came in late on and it's also it's also very difficult for new people coming into a band that's been yeah. traveling for quite a time and the other guys were would you know they were quite happy just to go along and do it or not do it so then rick started doing different things and chick yeah. started doing different things and the last time we got back together it i felt that um even before alvin left i i felt that it, i was the only one that cared yeah you know what I mean? It, it was one of those things. And Alvin and I had a big, big row. Not unusual because we did occasionally fight, even though I, I loved him like a brother and and, yeah. and he, me, and we had a great respect. And we, we shared so many experiences together that nobody can, nobody can understand. But um, yeah. so, you know, then they tried to do it without me and they, that didn't work. Alvin wouldn't do it with the other guys. And then... Then the next time they came round, the record company, it's usually a record company that says, hey, we want, why don't you do this? Or why don't you do that? And, uh, you know, you usually get the last time we got together, I was actually working in Nashville, as, as I say, as a songwriter, writing country songs and, and doing a little bit of engineering. And um, they asked me to do some work with a blues guitar player, tour of Italy. And I thought Italy would be a great place to go during the heat of Nashville gets unbelievably humid in the summer. So I, I went to Italy for the food, really. Then they said, why don't you put 10 years after back together? And we I didn't think it was possible. And I wasn't really keen to do it. But um, I said, okay, all right, let's 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 try a few guitar players. And that's how Joe Gooch came in on the scene. Alvin didn't want to do it. By this time, he said he wasn't going to do it anyway. He didn't need the money. He'd retired and so on and so forth. So we went out with Joe and it started up again. And it went really well for a time, but it it always comes back to the same thing with me. I want to move forward. I don't want to stand yeah. still. I don't want to ride on my laurels. I want, you know, I'd say, well, why don't we have a light show? And why don't we do this? And why don't we present it almost like an experience of Woodstock? It sounds crass, but you know what I mean? Mm. Oh, no, that's going to cost money. And, and, that, and, and you get into all sorts of problems. So in the end, Joe and I quit with that and started again. And it literally started again from from the bottom, you know. Yeah. And nobody knew who 170 split was. And 10 years on, people do. And I could yeah. tour for the rest of my life <laughs> playing, you know, clubs. I, I just We just got fed up of people saying, oh, I didn't realise you were in the band. Um, or, you know, or Leo, are you doing gigs? Or yeah. this, that, and the other. So we decided to, at the end of this last October tour, which which went very well, that we would we would rebrand the name and uh, go out again and say, hey, you know, this is the story. We'll see what happens. We we bring the new record out anyway. So I say it's it's done. But I think I've got to record one more track. There's one track I wasn't happy with, and it would be a track short. So I'll record that, and uh, out it comes. And it's still a mix of stuff, yeah. and there's still, you know, a lot of that swing stuff. There's swing stuff on there. There's rock stuff on there. There's some of my country influences on there. There's some heavy rock on there. Some heavy blues on on there. All sorts of different stuff. I said to Joe, it doesn't matter. Records don't sell in the millions anymore, and we can do whatever we like. It won't make the slightest bit of difference. We have a fan base. They'll buy our records, and perhaps with, with a little bit of change of a name, more people will hear what we do. We could reinvent ourselves.
mentioned about production work yeah one of the great series of albums that involved with with ufo yes you know including no heavy petting yeah. great album so how did you get involved with ufo i, I guess was it chrysalis suggestion? It was Chrys- yeah it was chrysalis um i'd started working i've always been interested in recording and i had a little it would be pretentious to say recording studio but that's what i thought it was in my house and I was doing demos for them, and um, notably with Frankie Miller, you know, the singer Frankie yeah. Miller. When Frankie first came to London, and I did a lot of demos for them, so they knew that. And they knew what I did in 10 years after 
I guess that's the key. Somebody, nobody, unless they're on the inside, knows what your contribution is to to the recording process, and they knew, so they knew I could do the job. And they they'd been offered this band UFO, and and the briefing to me was, well, we don't know that they'll sell many records, but they seem to do okay in Germany. So, going, we'll give you a day in the studio with them and see what happens. And uh, that's what that's what happened. I went in the studio with them for the day, and I think we cut. Um, we could give her the gun and I'm not sure what the other track was. Anyway, I did that. And um, the band liked working with me and the record company liked uh, what I'd done. So I got the job producing that record for them. At the same time, I was, I was actually running a recording studio for Chrysalis with Wessex Studios in London. So I was studio manager there and producing a band, UFO, and recording Positive Vibrations. The ten years after record, all at the same time, over the same same period. So it was, it was pretty busy, pretty frustrating to to go and and work work with ten years after as well. But they wanted that; they wanted me to do that. A fool in love from No Heavy Petting, I think, is a, a Frankie Miller song. Was that your suggestion? Yes, actually, the the, the phenomenon was the one I was doing the first right. record. I did. Yeah, yes, it was. We, we, like a lot of bands, when you first take a band, and I know UFO had several other albums out earlier, but they were different type of music. When we'd done the first record, Phenomenon, we'd done pretty much their stage set, and then No Heavy Petting, they were a little bit short. So I, I came up with a couple of songs that they should do, and that's what we did. Have You Seen Me Lately, Joan, and uh, Fool in Love, yeah. What are the songs? I actually demoed. <laughs> With Frankie, but uh, yeah, I enjoyed working with them. We did three. Golly, I think I engineered or produced um, some of the tracks from Live at the Roundhouse of theirs as well, and some movie stuff. But um, yeah, it was good. I still, I'm still in touch with them. I did a, I did a Wasted album after that as well. So yeah, seems was it was about seventy five, maybe nineteen seventy five, seventy seven, and into the eighties. People say I'm alive and hard, but they don't.
say out to find someone But my heart belongs to you I wanted to close by again covering 170 split in yep. retrospective album the story so far. One of the other unreleased songs was uh, "She's Got the Mojo," and so yeah. that was a, another song that was recorded over the the COVID lockdown period. It was. We we, we did do it as a studio uh, recording, but this was just the three of us just playing away. So that was yeah, that was done over the, the lockdown period. Is that a, a similar sound to what we expect with you? forthcoming album I, th- I yeah I think it's I think we try to be what's the word organic but I don't st- I don't quote me because I may start messing about with it but <laughs> at the moment it's it's pretty organic it's I wanted to get in get in the studio all of us play play live and and very few overdubs that's what we're trying what we're trying to, to achieve and so far it sounds it's it sounds pretty good We've been doing it over fitting with everybody's commitments. It's been over quite a space of time. Every time I go back, I listen to it and think, ah, yeah, okay. <laughs> that's good. That's great. That's not so good. Let's redo this. Let's record, let's record a new track. And that's where we're at at the moment. Um, I think I've, I've got 10 tracks and I, I need, I want to record one more or if not two more, and then we're, we're ready to go with. Um, have you been doing it remotely, or have you been travelling back over to the US? No, we've been tra- we've been travelling. Yeah, right. we've been travelling. We've recorded most of it in in, um, in in studio in Swindon, which is our drummer's studio, Crescent Studios. I'm, so that's where we've been doing most of it. Last week, I was in in the music box in Cardiff, just doing some vocals because uh, I, I live I live in Cardiff, so I didn't have to travel so far. Um, I'm, I usually usually I do a bit in my own home studio here, uh, mixing or mastering or any vocal overdubs. But I, I'm not doing it this time. I'm, I'm I just want to let my engineer engineer in the studio, and uh, I, I won't be sticking my hands on the faders. And um, our engineer actually is our sound man too, and uh, Ed Ed Truckle. He's a, he's a he started out working for me maybe eight years ago as a sound man on the gigs. And I worked with him a few times on the live recordings. And um, he's done, I think, three or four of our records since then, engineered. And we've done, he's done a bit, I've done a bit. Um, but now I, I, I'm doing all of it. So, Have you got any live dates booked in this year? Or This year's a funny year. I mean, the COVID thing completely screwed everything up. Yeah. Um, a lot of venues closed down. A lot of venues have got uh, numbers capped on them. And then there's Brexit and uh, yeah. all the paperwork and the cost of the paperwork and the cost of touring. So we're not going to be do what we normally would do. We'd go out for a month. Yeah. And we're not doing that. I, I've cut back on that. We, I, I, what I want to do is go out and do some festivals 
and and some one-off gigs where we can fly in and fly out. So that's what we, we're hoping we can do. It's unfortunate because I actually like doing an extended tour because it gets the band really tight and yeah. it's great, great working. It it's, makes financial sense to play a festival and that's fun, but to play a club is great because you're right. That's where I like to see a band. That's where you should see a band, I think. Um, but to, it's not cost effective to, to, I mean, this last October tour we did, we, we did fine. We had a good turnout. Um, but, you know, one or two shows were cancelled because of COVID and I'm out, yeah. out on the road with a whole crew and yeah. hotels and transportation. Yeah. And I've got, I've got America, you see, to do as well. I haven't really been back to America for, for a while. Yeah. So, uh, so it's difficult. It's very difficult, the UK. And the only reason, I, I think, in the 60s that we cracked the UK was because of the dates we did in Scandinavia. During the summer, all those Scandinavian fans came to the UK and lined up outside the marquee and the other places, um, which made the press wake up and think, wait a minute, they're not on Radio 1. They're not, they're not, we're not writing about them in the pop magazines. And they haven't got a record deal, but maybe somebody wants to hear this. And that's how it happened. Really weird. But I do have a lot of fans who write to me all the time about saying, Leo, why don't you play in the UK? I saw you in Nottingham or Manchester or, you know, wherever. So I'd like to do it. And it would make sense. I could leave here today, do the gig and go home the next day, you know. Fingers crossed. How do people get in touch with you? I know you've got a website, Leo Lyons. Org. Is that the best place or is it uh, Facebook or? Yes, it is, or, or Facebook or I have a, a, a YouTube channel, which I, I started doing. It's I should post every week. On tour, I posted just about every day and I've started to get back to it. I used to do once a week or twice a week, but there, there are gaps of a month. People ask me questions and then I answer them. That's always a good one. And that's um, Leo Lyons Musician, I think it's called, on YouTube. Or Leo Lyons, Leo Lyons dot org or um leo lines facebook well leo uh, what a pleasure it is and, and what a career and what fantastic music and even better that there's more fantastic music coming out and i really love the Thank retrospective you. the story so far 170 split my pleasure and don't forget that the um repertoire have have all the uh, records in their entirety and I, I haven't spoken to thomas the boss recently but I think they're they're mostly up, they are all coming out on vinyl at some stage. Ah. I don't know I don't know how many are out at the moment, but uh, I have my own label and put them out on vinyl, so they're around somewhere. Brilliant! Thank you for being so generous with your time today. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye. Bye. You while you can. So stick 
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew Podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.